This is John Halsman, and welcome to our latest Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And I have just kept to my vow to the community to every single week have a podcast out. It is Sunday, uh, mid-afternoon, or sorry, about noon here in Milan, and I am back from my five-day trip to San Francisco. It was great to see one of my absolutely favorite cities ever. Uh, when I was a child, I had one of the best days of my life with my mother and father and sister having ice cream in Girardelli Square, visiting Alcatraz and seeing the sights. I'll remember that forever. And San Francisco continues to dazzle. It was great to be at Finnovate, uh, my friends with Informa, seeing so many of them. And uh, Getting to give a keynote, a new keynote, I really enjoyed, and play a war game on the post-Ukraine world. All of that was great, but along the way, because of the fact I'm frantically trying to finish the last best hope to get the book out for the Iowa caucuses, we have to have everything out on September 3rd, as you know. And I've pinched a nerve in my in my hand, or in my arm, actually, my shoulder, radiating into my back and down my arm, my left arm. And uh, this plus a 15-hour plane trip, plus sitting in the bathtub taking notes like Churchill and Lawrence, two of the people I most admire. I like to work in the tub. For all these reasons, this was quite a severe nerve pinch. And for the last week, I've had to learn what it's like to be right-handed. I mean, this is on my left side. I've had to shave with my right hand, get dressed with my right hand alone, um, and navigate traveling with just one arm. So it has been more than a little bit challenging. And uh, after I got back, Sarah has taken uh, a pity on me and bought me some very good anti-inflammatories. They haven't entirely worked yet, uh, but that's the reason this podcast is so late. But I have kept my word. I'm stationary. I've had some sleep. Today, for the first time, I shaved again with my left hand, so I'm hoping that I can get no serious nerve damage, can go to D.C., as you know, the next week. Uh, not this one, but the week after, is our big week in Washington where we talk to the Stand Together Alliance about what they've bought and try to begin to rally the Republican Party, both its Jeffersonian and Jacksonian wings around a realist foreign policy moving forward, which is the basic theme of The Last Best Hope, a history of American realism. We're going to talk an awful lot more about that. Um, and indeed, I'll give you a trip report from Washington on how things are going. I'm meeting with pretty much everybody in both parties as when I go, um, along with John Goodnight, my faithful sidekick, Sundance to my Butch Cassidy. But the highlight will be the salon dinner for the Stand Together Alliance at the Koch Foundation to see what they bought with our attempt to remake the Republican Party and through that to remake America and the world. But before all that, I thought we'd continue along with our great series, uh, which I've been urged to do by a couple people, The World Through Japan's Eyes. We've done the other great powers, first the two superpowers, the United States and China, and I thought today we'd move on to the great powers and show that they have an awful lot more room to run with a football in our new era than they did in our old one. And I've said this before, I think the exemplar of the old Cold War era is the greatest writer of that era, in my mind, Graham Greene, the great English novelist. And basically, much as I love him, most Graham Greene stories can be condensed into about a paragraph, a wistful alcoholic, disappointed, middle-aged Englishman late in his life comes to understand meaning, usually by falling in love with a local woman, only to have his life destroyed, usually by either the Americans or the Soviets or both. And what Green was really lamenting was the lack of agency that former superpower England had, that its people were now 
largely at the mercies of the Americans or the Soviets one way or the other, and that this stopped them behaving in a free and open manner and usually led to tragedy for them, if not their deaths, then certainly their betrayal. And this is the basic Templar of, uh, template of such great stories as Our Man in Havana, uh, The Heart of the Matter, Honorary Council, uh, to name just three of his many novels. I mean, you can go all the way back. Um, you know, I mean, you could pick almost a Graham Greene novel per decade. But I mean, those those strike me as my favorites. The Comedians is another example of this genre working uh, very well indeed. Um, but for all these reasons, Graham Greene novels symbolize that new era when really the two superpowers set the scene and everybody underneath had to knuckle under, either through force through the Soviet Union as when they invaded Prague after the Prague Spring of 1968, Hungary in 1956, East Berlin in 1953, and Poland in 1980, or the Americans knocking people into line, even Charles de Gaulle, getting rid of the idea of force to frapper an independent European defense policy and coming to grips with them at, at NATO meetings. Slightly more adroit, uh, the fist hidden in a velvet glove, but still the fist was there. And Green was right that both superpowers had a lot of control. We may have a bipolar world in that the United States and China are the only two superpowers, but the world is much more multipolar in the sense that both the great powers directly underneath the two superpowers, Japan, the EU, Russia, the Anglosphere, and India, and then the regional powers even beneath them, places like Turkey, Indonesia, uh, Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, um, the, the coming world, Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey, they have an awful lot more room for independence. And at the great power level, they can even really set their own foreign policy. These great powers can decide either to be pro-American, pro-Chinese, or neutralist. They can run their own independent foreign policy. And so we don't live in, even though the world is bipolar as it was in Graham Greene's day, the second Cold War is very different in that it isn't this Graham Greene tragedy. These great powers have an awful lot more room to run with the football this time. And they're doing that. And there's no better example of this than our first great power we're looking at, Japan. Really, Shinzo Abe, the recently tragically assassinated premier of Japan, has done more to set in place the new era we live in, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, than any number of American presidents or even Chinese premieres, that, that he has really set the scene. And this is very different than the old era. Abe, who's uh, an interesting fellow and in that he's part of Japanese nobility in essence, that, that his grandfather, uh, Prime Minister Kishi, one of the effective early post-war Japanese prime ministers of the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, really hews to this more pro-American line that Kishi, the grandfather, set out. Abe worshipped his grandfather um, and when he came to power, was determined to restore this pro-American slant to Japanese thinking in a fundamental way. Of course, the Liberal Democratic Party, which is almost a one-party state, occasionally there's a blip and somebody else on the left runs things, but never for very long. The Liberal Democratic Party has been the party of governance since the 19, early 1950s. The interesting thing about Japan is that nothing is as it seems the Liberal Democratic Party is neither liberal nor democratic nor much of a party. It's conservative in its orientation, certainly on the center-right in Japanese thinking, but a good conservative party in general. Um, it's not democratic in that its, its decision-making is decided by a series of, of dominant party factional leaders within, meaning that it's not a party. 
and that it picks its leadership within this elite. So it's really, its name belies the fact that it's none of these things. But Abe was the puppet master of all these things. And when he finally came to power for a second time in the 2000s, 2000, I think, seven, eight, he had been in power very briefly and unsuccessfully. But when he came back to power in, I believe, 2011 or 12, and then sat as eight years, the longest consecutive string of one prime minister serving Japan in its post-war history, he gave them that stability that they'd been lacking but within the LDP had been there, but within one person had been lacking. But more importantly, he helped set a course that both the Japanese and the Americans have, I'm sorry, the Chinese and the Americans have been struggling to follow ever since. And what Abe realized was that in this bipolarity that these great powers had a lot of room to run with a football. And instinctively, he realized with the rise of Xi Jinping that China was changing, that the China of Xi would not be the China of Deng Xiaoping, but more like the China of Mao Zedong, that it would be a China that would be expansionistic, ideological, and aggressive. And that unlike the detente that had broken out between Japan and China with Deng, that the character of the Chinese regime was reverting to Maoist form. And really, Shinzo Abe came to this conclusion before anybody else, certainly in the West, and he moved to make plans accordingly. He changed Japan's geoeconomics and geostrategy fundamentally. What did he do? The first thing that Abe did was set in place the quadrilateral initiative, which had been his initiative back in the 2000s, though it had proven stillborn, but he got the right pieces on the chessboard. The four members of the quad are Japan, which is a great power leaning toward the United States, India, which is a great rising power leaning toward the United States, at least within the Indo-Pacific, even if it's neutral at a more global level, um, Australia, which is a member of a card-carrying member of the Anglosphere, which is inherently pro-American in outlook, and the United States itself. So superpower America, great power India, great rising power India, great power Japan, and Anglosphere member Australia. That's about the ideal membership for a group that's serving as a nascent anti-Chinese alliance to keep an eye on Chinese adventurism throughout the Indo-Pacific. Abe saw this reinstituted the quad, and this time it worked. The second effort was successful, and largely it was successful because Abe cemented ties with Australia, but more importantly with India, that, that Abe had a good personal relationship with, with uh, Narendra Modi, Modi, the populist leader of India, the long-serving populist leader of India, that Abe saw that Modi was a coming force of the BJP, his nationalistic Hindu party was, in effect, the LDP in India, and they were natural, ideological, and geostrategic bedfellows, and he went out of his way to cultivate Modi, and they had a strong personal relationship. Let's remember that in Asia, um, as Lawrence noted back with the Middle East, but in Asia as a whole, people matter more than institutions. There is no NATO framework in Asia that people matter personal ties matter. Long-standing ties of family, clan, class matter. Abe knows this to the tips of his fingers or knew this because of his own Japanese ties, and he set out to internationalize this personal experience, building institutions from these personal ties. And the Modi-Abe access made the um, quad work the second time with the United States dutifully following along, but really it's that Japanese instigation of this and then linking things to growing India 
that made the whole thing work. And Abe is absolutely instrumental. The Quad is his monument. And the Americans came along after. Again, this isn't like the Cold War, where there's no way NATO would have ever have existed without the United States doing all the legwork. Here in the Quad, Japan, a great power, but not a superpower, did all the legwork, and the United States dutifully followed behind. And it has been a roaring success because of this, that this is not some American-imposed dominance. This is a regional organization in the Indo-Pacific that looks after China, its anti-Chinese to the extent that it's against Chinese adventurism. All these countries happen to be democratic. All these countries happen to be pro-American in outlook. But it is not an American-imposed institution. Rather, it is a Japanese-inspired institution that is regional in nature, dependent on these relationships. And Abe, uh, to his great success, instituted the Quad. For that alone, he should be lauded in history. And I, indeed, most of the people we talk about, they come, they go, leaders. They're not historical. They don't matter in a broader historical way. Well, Abe does, and the Quad is his monument. And so Japan really you know, put in place this anti-Chinese mini nascent NATO that is going to be his legacy. But he also cared about geoeconomics, and he said that, look, the problem with the rest of the world is that America is increasingly cursed with two protectionist parties, which it's never had in its history. The Democratic Party, um, which has you know, gone, gone against uh, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a very ambitious trade deal uh, negotiated by the Obama administration with Abe promising to join. And at the time, I thought, what are the odds that Abe can convince the most protectionist human beings on the planet, Japanese farmers, and traditionally they had been, to join this free trade alliance. He'll never get them on board. And Abe shrewdly and adroitly proved me absolutely wrong. This is a call I got wrong. And the reasons being that Abe framed it not as an economic argument where the LDP, which largely is funded by Japanese farmers, would have, would have killed this, it strangled the baby at birth, that rather Abe said, look, this has to do with geoeconomics and thus geopolitics, that if we let China be the number one trading partner of literally everybody in the region and we don't form some sort of countervailing economic bloc, although that all these countries may side with us over security, their economic ties to China will make it very difficult for them to side with us when it comes to it, or if there's a war in the region. So we have to offer them an economic alternative, which is absolutely should be American policy and isn't, and absolutely should be. Shame on both parties. Indeed, when Hillary ran for, for president, she denigrated this very treaty that she herself helped to sign. That's how far the Democrats were running from their protectionist base. Uh, forget about Donald Trump and, and Barack Obama in typical uh, fashion, the darling of the academic jet set, never bothered doing the politics to get the bill through. Didn't lift a finger to negotiate with Congress to get this deal done because he knew he'd have problems with his own party, let alone the Republicans. So the United States didn't sign the TPP. Well, in the Graham Greene world of the first Cold War, this would have been the end of it. The United States doesn't sign the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a Pacific plate level agreement around the Pacific Rim and into Asia that negotiates free trade deals and sets standards, more importantly, for investment and new things such as high tech, not just old products such as trading in manufactured goods, and that we would give all this up and that would have been the end of it. 
But Abe saw that it wasn't the end of it. Having convinced his own farmers to cave, he wasn't about to throw away that bingo chip. So the TPP became the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, shepherded to existence again by, guess who? Shinzo Abe, who got everybody else to join the agreement on almost exactly the same terms as before, but just minus the witless United States which continues to set out of this great deal on geoeconomics. And Abe got it across the line. Well, in Graham Greene's world, no great power would have ever been able to, on its own, do this. But he was able to, because he had the room to move with the football. So both the Quad, which is the number one anti-Chinese geostrategic institution, and the CPTPP, which is the number one anti-Chinese geoeconomic institution, came about due to a Japanese prime minister rather than an American president. That's the essence of the difference of the new era that we live in. That Shinzo Abe at the great power level, because he knew what he wanted to do, knew how to go about doing it, and wasn't blocked by anybody, managed to make history and make himself a figure of genuine world historical importance. And even more importantly, and this is the ultimate test of world historical importance, what he did survived after he left the scene, that when Abe retired, um, Fumio Kishida is now the prime minister, who's only prime minister because Abe's faction let him be, that on his own, before Abe, when Kishida just ran a faction and had been involved in Japanese cabinets, he tended to be on the left wing of the LDP. He was a peacenik. He was a guy who said, well, we have to worry about Chinese economic interests and we should try to negotiate more with them. Almost the exact opposite of Abe's position. Since he's been prime minister, Mr. Kishida has been more like Abe than Abe. Why? Always the political risk question that we, got, we run into as a community. If we can answer the why, we can understand the world. Well, why was that Kishida would never have been made prime minister without the support of Abe's faction. Abe's faction, even after he retired due to ill health, remained the largest and dominant faction in the LDP. So Abe went in Japanese politics from being the front man to being the kingmaker. But if anything, he wielded more power from behind the scenes than when he had to present himself to parliament. Now he put Kishida in and said, listen, kid, you can be prime minister, but only if you on my terms, if you adopt the hawkish line of my faction. And if you don't, you're never going to be prime minister because there was no obvious candidate um, at this point. And so Kushida made this deal very obviously to win over the support of Abe's faction, which did prove decisive in getting him to be prime minister. But in doing so, he had to adopt Abe's policies. So we now have a leader, a mini-me of Abe, and more importantly, we know he's going to continue with them because without the support of Abe's faction, even after his death, his tragic assassination, um, we, we know that this will continue because Kushida is only there because the faction still exists. And without Abe's faction, Kushida would fall from power immediately. So Abe has entrenched his position on the Quad and on CPTPP into Japanese, the dominant governing party, uh, which is the LDP of Japan. So he's made what he's done, not ethereal, but long lasting. Much as the Thatcher revolution wasn't undone by Tony Blair when he came to power, and much as FDR's New Deal wasn't undone by Dwight Eisenhower when he finally came to power, um, that's the sign of foreign policy or domestic policy success. When what you've done isn't undone by the other guys, when they come in. Well, 
within the party, the left-wing faction of the party, which Kishida does symbolize, utterly knuckled under to Abe and what he wanted on policy in order to win on the politics. And that is the ultimate sign of Abe and Japan's triumph. Japan is firmly decided to be in the pro-American camp, but not as some passive follower, as someone leading the charge to make the Indo-Pacific more pro-American, more pro-Western, more anti-Chinese, more open, more democratic. Um, and this is a wonderful thing uh, for the United States, and I would argue, indeed, for the rest of the world. Japan is too often thought, thought, thought so little about. It's amazing to me that Abe has done all this and nobody's much talked about it. This is vital. And we should talk a lot more about Japan. And seeing the world through Japan's eyes, it's heading in the direction that Abe wanted. That's the ultimate sign of success. Well, thank you very much. Fun to do this one, even with a crippled hand. And I will be healing that and writing my big speech for the Stand Together Alliance in the opening of the book. Uh, we'll talk an awful lot more about my trip to Washington next week. I'll try to do a, a podcast on the road. Uh, when we get to D.C., which is in about two weeks' time, next week we'll do another one of these world through somebody's eyes things. We'll look at another great power, and then it's off to D.C. in the speech. And in fact, I might give you a virgin version of that speech that I do. That would be fun if I did that. But we'll do another great power before then. For all of you who've subscribed, we're incredibly grateful that things are booming. Please do, for those of you who haven't, please do continue to subscribe. And for those of you that have, please do give. We need these $70, just $7 a month or $70 a year to keep giving you the most cutting edge foreign policy imaginable and having so much fun in doing it. And uh, I love doing this with the community. And I kept my word not to miss a single week. I'm delighted to have done that. And on to next week. You guys have a great weekend and we'll continue seeing the world through the great power's eyes. Take care and talk soon.